Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, today's guest is one of the country's leading authorities on the business of communications and founder of the Communications Clinic, as well as an Irish Examiner columnist. I'm talking about Terry Prone. Terry, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you, sir. Now, Terry, there's a load of issues I'd like to cover, but could I start with a question which um, unfortunately is not an original one for me? I wish it was, but here it goes. How long more will we have to put up with this appalling government? My guess is the guts are four years, but I have no good track record in predicting the length of governments. But then I don't think anybody ever has, really. It comes back to Albert Reynolds' thing of it's the little things that suddenly bring you down and a confluence of weird stuff. I mean, we we don't often approvingly quote C.J. Hawhey, but he really was right with that gubu thing, whatever it was, grotesque, unprecedented. Every now and again, a government walks into this thing and it's just very difficult to get out of, not least because journalists like you are creating feeding frenzies and deciding that nobody in government has any virtue or integrity at all. <laughs> That's a bit harsh now, Terry. No, but in terms of being serious, how they got, they've got off to a bad start. As you say, if it lasts four years, the fact that this was a bit of a mess, the fact that unlike what many people thought Michal Martin wanted, particularly he'd wanted the job so bad to get off, flying off, it's been a bit messy with all this stuff. Barry Cowan, the hullabaloo over the ministers. But I suppose the question is whether any of that unless the government falls next week, will really matter? The short answer is it doesn't matter at all. And I suspect that it doesn't matter particularly to Micheál Martin because Micheál Martin has two advantages. One is that he's been there for 180 years, so he knows everything about politics. And the other is that he's an historian. And so he has that long view thing that although the present may be problematic, he doesn't necessarily get his knickers that knotted. And also, let's be honest, some of it has been very funny. I mean, it has been very funny to see the total lack of discipline or dignity on the part of lads that didn't get the jobs they were hoping for. I mean, it's unbelievable that they would all come out uh, implying that their entire province has been uh, disrespected just because they didn't get the job. And then you have suggestions that a senior council is going to make Fianna Fáil um, interesting to young people. I wish him well. I hope he does it. 
but it's a kind of surprising thing. So there was all that. And then uh, over in the Greens, you have something that I would regard as slightly more important because I, I need to make it very clear that, first of all, my company has a training retainer with Fine Gael at the moment. But we also have worked with the Greens and with Fianna Fáil. And I would have worked with both leaders, all three leaders. But the one thing that always distinguished the Greens was, do you know that great Irish expression? They were kind of innocent. They yeah. were harmless. Yes. There was no bad in them. They were the exceptions. And so people who knew shag all about the Greens or about the environment and cared less would kind of give them a free pass and a vote. And in the last two, three weeks, they haven't been that harmless or innocent. And there's been a, um, an abrasive tone to what they've been doing that runs counter to the way most people see them. It does. I wonder, Terry, on that issue, is it a reflection of particularly in today's world where social media dominates a whole different tone to politics? Because one aspect of the Greens in that respect is they have, to some extent, a very young membership in some respects. And you'd have to wonder, is that change of tone what some people might regard as healthy irreverence, but others would consider to go way beyond what you might call normal or, or acceptable um, standards of, of, of public discourse? Yeah, I think that the problem about the use of social media is that it has become a habit without the people who use it most considering what they're using it for. They get engaged in the, um, I was going to say backslapping, but it's mostly backstabbing, and the smart arsery, the banter, all of that sort of stuff. And they don't realise, the young politicians among them, that self-expression is not what politics is about. You can sound off as much as you like, but people vote for you because of the way you make them feel about themselves. Not because you're being smart on social media. And also you must remember that social media has so many platforms that the 10,000 people who follow you on one may not have any clue what you're doing on another. I am very wary of young politicians who become addicted to social media. And there's a number of books that I constantly recommend that they read in order to stand back and realize, no, no, this is a means of communication, but it shouldn't dictate what you do, you must be clear who it is that you're trying to reach all of the time. Because one of the things that we have always said is, look, when you're communicating as a politician, you have, your audience is divided into three. There's the people who would already die for you, you know, yeah. your own party members. There's the people who will never go near you, who hate your guts instinctively by DNA and everything. And then in the middle, there's a small bunch of floating voters. 
You should never bother your arse talking to the people you already have. You should never go near fighting with the people that you don't have. You need to go for the people that really haven't made up their mind and give them a bloody good reason to make up their mind and to make it up in your favour. Yeah, very much so. Just while we're on that area, that group that you're talking about, the group in the middle that you're after, if that group, like you, for example, to the greatest extent, interact through social media, doesn't it make, therefore, that ripe to manipulate people? Not manipulate people, but to bring people over to your point of view by creating a reality within social media that projects you as a great authority on things where you can't be challenged on that. What I'm talking about is if you and me are on social media and I keep telling you I'm great and you only uh, get your information through the same social media channel, you've no reason to believe I'm not great. There's no evidence in front of you to say that I'm not great. So therefore you come to the conclusion ultimately that I'm great because you don't have the information that shows I might be the pits altogether. You follow me? <laughs> I do. You are a constant joy, Mick. Uh, first of all, uh, this thing of the kind of Fox News syndrome that you're talking about. That's exactly where, how I should have put it. <laughs> no, no, but where people are getting into a smaller and smaller bunch of uh, self-reinforcement. We have to hope that that has a shelf life and there's the beginnings of an indication in America that it has a shelf life but the more important thing is that people deceive themselves about social media and particularly political people uh, deceive themselves about social media and they believe first of all that if they are on it they're winning and I'll come back to that in a minute and the second thing is they think it's all they have to do now, if you look at the most active political party on social media for the longest time, you're talking about Sinn Féin. Mm. And it's very tempting to say, oh, Jesus, you're Sinn Féin. Oh, the um, punishment tweetings and all that sort of thing. <laughs> it, it slightly misses the point. Sinn Féin on the ground are doing the kind of work that Fianna Fáil used to do on the ground, Very true. that the Labour Party used to do on the ground, and that nobody except Sinn Féin is doing on the ground. And let me tell you something else. No matter how, even in the lockdown, um, but now particularly after the lockdown, the truth of communication is that one-to-one, face-to-face, is the single most effective means of communication. If I say to you, Mick, there have been points in your life where you got your act together or you took a turn that you'd never expected or you did something that required courage, you usually find when you say that to somebody that it happened because one other person talked to them. Could be a teacher, could be a mentor, could be your mother, could be your partner. But one person got the truth through to you. One person face to face, one to one. That's the absolute best. And that's why working on the ground 
locally is the very best way to do it. Going back for a minute to people in politics convincing themselves that if they're on social media, they are so cool. Um, two things about that. There was a lovely thing in the last few days that happened in Canada where a begging your pardon, gobshite woman, uh, appeared in a hospital with a broken finger or a suspected broken finger and said she wanted to treat it. Fine. Except the hospital staff said, you got to wear a mask. And she decided that wearing a mask infringed on her basic human rights, her constitutional entitlements, all of that sort of stuff. And she filmed them refusing to treat her unless she wore the mask and uploaded it. Now, she, about six hours later, announced that she was thrilled to be leading um, the most responded to tweets as the current COVIDiot. Now, this is not a win, but it's a very serious problem that and for p politicians particularly that they miss they misrepresent attention as appreciation no if we're all united for a brief period of time in saying you know what you're a gobshite it doesn't mean that that fame will trans translate into something useful for your career the other thing is that some of the traditional political parties have a presence on social media which is dated, it's creepy, it's not witty. Um, they're, they're just standing up in front of a camera saying stuff badly. And that's what I'm really saying about presence is not enough. You have to be really interesting and engaging if you're going to be there and if you're going to be effective. Yeah, a bit like the 50-year-old rock journalist writing about the newest phase for uh, teenagers in terms of music, that kind of thing. Like, yeah, yeah, I get you. Now, another aspect of communications, again, and you touched on Fox News, Terry, and we've seen with Donald Trump, it would seem, certainly as far as some audiences are concerned, that that old relatively golden rule, if I could put it that way, that you should always tell the truth because if you're caught out lying, the repercussions will be huge. That seems in the age of Trump and to a certain extent, the age of Boris Johnson to be out the window, which begs the question, if one was advising in politics today, would one place the same emphasis on ultimately not telling lies in public that used to be the case? Obviously, I can only speak for us. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and in, uh, how, how you perceive it in general as well, perhaps, you know. But I, I think that there's a real danger that people will decide, oh, Jesus, all bets are off. I think that that would be a stupid decision because if you're looking at Boris Johnson and Trump, they're unique personalities with a unique reach at a unique time. And I just don't think that's going to extend to other people. In my personal beliefs, um, I believe very strongly that 
the old biblical thing, the truth will set you free. I have never assisted somebody to tell a lie in public. Not going to start now. And I think that we tend to get rabbit in headlights fascinated, particularly by Trump. Certainly the Democrats have got fascinated by him. And nobody has turned around and said, well, do you know something? The Democrat communication has been pretty crap, but it has for several years, going right back to and before the Hillary Clinton campaign. A preachy, conceptual, we will do right by the poor and the blacks and minorities, a kind of a slightly updated Victorian view of their responsibility. And they never really noticed the degree to which they were losing their audience. And when they did notice it, they noticed it resentfully, as if somehow Trump had stolen that audience from them. And I have been saying, and clearly I have no influence anywhere, but certainly not in America. Um, I have been saying, oh dear God, how soon will they get around to the one effective way of communicating about Trump, which is mocking him. And of course, it wasn't the Democrats who started to do it. It's the Lincoln Project, which is Republicans who are just sick of Trump and want him out. And if anybody, any of your listeners, looks at the recent uh, TV ads, although mostly they're online, um, of the Lincoln Project, they are, they're just chilling, chills up the back of your neck. First of all, they're brilliant productions. They're so fast that you almost need to see them three times to make sure that you didn't miss something. And they are ruthless mockery. They bring him down. They make him look like a fool. They make him obviously look like a liar. But they're not seeking a high-minded tone. They're just saying, this is what you're like. And they're quite deliberately, some of the recent ones, trying to provoke him into a Twitter uh, feud with them. Because they know that if they annoy him enough, he'll start being an idiot online. Um, the, the flaw, the major flaw in communication in the States in the last six years has been on the part of the Democrats. They have failed utterly to update and grow and take on the realities. It's also true though, isn't it, that Trump, in terms of being a, a media manipulator, in terms of pure communications, he has been... Amazing in some respects. Put it this way, he's, he, he has captured the Republican Party. He's in with a shout of getting re-elected. He hasn't a clue what he's doing. He hasn't an iota, like, literally about running a country. Yet, by his, his capacity to communicate and to target and to deflect and all that, he seems to have, it's quite an, an amazing feat in some respects that he's still there. He's sort of the quintessence of what Walter Mondale pointed out. Mondale lost very badly in his presidential election. And he said very straight up squarely, I lost because I couldn't do television. 
I didn't understand how important television was. Um, in a sense, Trump is the apotheosis of, of the opposite of that. Trump understands television. God, he understands it. He understands the short sentences, the repetition, the smirking affirmation of what you've just said. He is so comfortable in front of a camera. I'll give you one example of somebody who clearly was trained and experienced, but was no good at it. Hillary Clinton, if you look at any footage of her at any convention or co anything, She's always doing this fake pointing into the audience as though she recognises somebody in the audience. Bruce Springsteen's a great man for that. But Springsteen is Springsteen. Ah, he is. Yeah, 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 yeah. True, 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 yeah. Amy, my money down. Um, but Trump understands all of the things that Hillary Clinton didn't understand. And you have generations of Americans who have been raised on television and he copped on to social media before most American politicians did. Now you can say, and I'll be with you, that he copped on because it was, what, 140 words and it didn't kind of strain his intellect and he didn't have to cite sources or anything like that. But he was there. He was in the place that his voters were. But there's a deeper thing that we have to look at when you look at Trump, which is a whole series of books have been produced in the last three, four years about the, the people who vote for Trump. And they've been serious, thoughtful books that were sort of going... No, no, sh let's not have noise about it. These are good people in the main. They they want to believe in something. Why is it that they believe in Trump? And that's where anybody who's interested in political communication needs to go to say, okay, what what really appealed to people, the Trump people? and to what degree are they likely to lose interest in him? Because you must remember, there's been a hell of a lot of other famous people in America who've become governors and, you know, fairly important roles, but they've only been one-termers because the kind of transient excitement and I'm going to do a bad thing here and to hell with everybody else, I'm going to vote for this guy anyway. That doesn't rare it very rarely turns into an ongoing commitment yeah yeah and i find interesting you say that trump he, he is obviously thankfully most of us will say unique but what he seems to have ushered in and you, you seem to see it in other places around the world as well this particular strain of right-wing populism and all that comes with that I, you'd suspect that's here to stay for a while, Terry, that, that that whole thing. Whereas you may not have a Trump figure, you could have uh, Trump wannabes or mini Trumps, maybe, you know. I think this is one of the most frightening things I've seen in all of my time in, on the edges of politics. I never thought I would see it. I, I kind of thought that there was an evolutionary process taking us away from 
populism and fascism and racism and sexism and and I'm looking at them all coming back rampant and particularly the thing of people knowing that something cannot be true and yet deciding it's going to be true. The whole anti-vaccination thing floored me that people would endanger their own children in the face of all of the evidence and that the politicians would take pride in saying, oh, we don't believe in science that much. Oh, we're not into experts. I, I, and that this is continuing right now and that thousands of people in America, and I love America, thousands of people there are dying because of chosen ignorance. The, the chosen ignorance thing is the most frightening, I suspect, for any good politician and certainly for any communications expert because I'm not sure anybody has come up with a way of dealing with it. And I think that you have to decide, okay, that's going to be there, but can we ensure that the the people on our side of this argument outweigh them in sheer numbers because it is just so breathtakingly sad to look at the guys who went off and fought for America and who came to Europe and who served and who served in Korea dying in their hundreds in nursing homes and at the same time Americans Texans protesting outside the Capitol building for the constitutional right not to wear a mask to protect themselves. I mean, the only thing that I remember that was like it was I was in Florida a few years ago. There was fierce controversy going on about forcing motorcyclists, bikers to wear helmets. And eventually the anti-helmet brigade won. And the law was passed saying, you don't have to wear a helmet anymore. And the leader of the bikers at the time was a woman. And the day the legislation was passed, she was killed off her motorbike because she didn't have a helmet on. And God forgive me, the urge to laugh and then the feeling of, but no, that is such a pointless I'm sure it's ironic, but it's a pointless human tragedy. And what we're seeing in America and to also in Brazil um, is, is stupidity, refusal to accept the truth. And I just, I sorry, I don't know what to do about that. And I don't think that either politics or journalism has worked out what to do about it either. To some extent, it's feelings over logic, feelings over science, isn't it? And that's something that longer term we're going to have to look at. Um, I Every day in my office, I am dealing with somebody who is either uh, they've just been promoted and they want help in, in working at a new level or, or they have a problem in work or they're a politician. And the lack of 
any capacity to do analytical thinking fascinates me. I mean, people say to me, Jesus, that's a great comment you made. I would never have thought of that. I don't think it, but it wasn't a great comment. It was the bleeding obvious. But somehow along the way, we've lost the capacity to teach kids to look at data and make logical inferences as a result. I don't know. We really do need to look at that one. And is, is that something, Terry, you've noticed changed over like recent decades, for instance? Hmm. Yes, I would be. But then, you see, politics, when I started, was, it was a much narrower uh, thing in media terms. Um, and you didn't, ex- every now and again, RTE, which was essentially the only channel at the time, would do something called a Vox Pop. And that meant that some poor whore of a reporter had to do the worst job in the world, which is to go out and shove a microphone in front of people and say, you know, what do you think of Michal Martin or what do you think of Barry Cowan or whatever? Um, and that was the nearest the plain people of Ireland really got to making a, a, a comment about politics. Now, yeah. in the last 10 years, there's a tsunami. There's a, it's unbelievable the level of comment. But I think the thing is that comment isn't contribution. And so we have constant noise, but a very few people working out, okay, here's how you get around that. Let's go for it. Yeah, look, for that happy medium where everybody has their say, but as long as their say is... Um delivered in a way, I suppose, that's beyond gratuitous or whatever you might say, you know. Bringing it back to another element of things, you had a very interesting column in The Examiner on Monday where you mentioned Victoria White, fellow Irish Examiner columnist. Victoria, just for people who may not have seen it, wrote a fascinating column, I found it fascinating anyway, last Thursday, where she said she was signing off after a long number of years with The Examiner from her column, which she loved very much, and the reason for her departure was that her husband, Eamon Ryan, leader of the Green Party and now Minister for Transport, the portfolios this time around, they're a complete jumble. Even Eamon Ryan's, for instance, I think it's got, it's uh, communication networks. It's not just communication. Communication networks, climate action and transport. Eamon Ryan's in charge of that. That's her husband. Victoria feels that there may be a conflict of interest. She gave one example, as for example, if there had been some... Um, disagreement in cabinet and she was to comment on it some within the cabinet would read that comment or could read that comment as effectively her being her husband's voice it could cause hassle she decided on a principle basis the best thing was to stand back even though it very much was something that she enjoyed doing you Terry you uh, kind of responded to that to some extent and said why? I I was really furious that when Victoria wrote her original column that a whole bunch of women's organisations didn't step up to the plate and say, whoa, hold on here. This is a very interesting thing. When we, in the old days, when a woman married a man, she automatically lost a shitload of rights. She had to actually ask him to get a, a library card for her. We kind of thought we had fixed that. 
And now we have this career journalist indicating that her rights are subordinate to those of her husband. Is that what she said? Or inferred? Or is that what you would have taken from it? I think that if the woman feels that she has to resign her job in order not to be misunderstood in a way that would damage her husband, there's something totally wrong about that. I don't mean that there's anything wrong with Victoria. I think she she was right to say what she said. I just think it's outrageous that she would feel that she had to do it. Because let's be clear, if Victoria did write something about the cabinet and cabinet members uh, decided that she was mouthpiecing for uh, her husband, Eamon Ryan. That says interesting things. It says Victoria White hasn't got a brain of her own. Victoria White is just a mouthpiece for the man that she lives with. That's an interesting judgment on a woman. And it also says that Eamon Ryan is such a weakling that he can't articulate his own views in his own proper area. And neither of those two things are true. And yet we've had a fair number of examples of where it is assumed that there will be absolute uniformity between two public figures. Uh, I mean, I can remember very early on in my marriage, we were at some kind of a a social event, a dinner or something, at which my husband, Tom, disagreed with me about something. And I was livid. And when we got into the car, I did this thing of, well, you're driving and I just look out the window and said nothing. And after a while, I could hear him laughing very softly. And of course, that maddened me even more. And I said, and he said, Tess, we we don't have to agree all the time. Marriage doesn't mean that we're different from what we were before. You're entitled to your views. I'm entitled to mine. And it utterly floored me because I had bought into the notion that in some way, now that we were one in the eyes of the law or whatever, we had to be one intellectually. And it was the most wonderfully freeing thing. And I think it's time we began to challenge particularly media perceptions about this because there have been examples, although not in Ireland, of you know um, James Carville, the guy who worked with Clinton, the yes, political advisor in the States, and Mary Matalin, his wife. They couldn't be more opposed. She was a Republican strategist with uh, the other crowd, yeah. Now, why should Mary Matalin abandon her career, her views, her everything? Because in some ways, some Egypt would say that Uh, James Carville was diminished by his wife not agreeing with him. Nonsense! But hold on, Terry. Take that example, even. Let's say Carville was not an advisor, but the president, and his wife was, um, from recollection, she used to have a TV show that was very much coming from a Republican point of view. But say she continued in public life in that role and her husband was president. Would that work as opposed to them both being, for example, backroom people, maybe? 
it wouldn't work if people like you got your <laughs> knickers knotted about it. <laughs> but if I put are, another way. <laughs> but if we are independent people, if each one of us has a DNA, has fingerprints to distinguish us from one another, if we have worked our way up for 20, 30, 40 years to achieve a particular point, why should your husband's role stop you having... Now, you would certainly have to stop all this nonsense about First Lady and that sort of stuff. You know, there's a choice to be made. And in fact, Hillary Clinton tried ineptly to straddle it because she did that health thing very badly and it didn't work. And people didn't like her doing it because they wanted her to be the first lady turning up at events and making nice. But we've moved on. And what if the shoe's in the other foot? What if in that... So they happen to be the story du jour or whatever. Say um, Victoria White was, was the government minister and Eamon Ryan was the columnist. Um, and suppose he, if he came to the same conclusion, and I would understand it personally, that perhaps there could be perceptions should he give it up? Wait a second. You would understand it. Why? I suppose that argument, it's not so much that, as Victoria was writing, I don't think she was writing that anybody was suggesting that she would be her husband's voice, but more that if she had an opinion that was in conflict with the best interests, for example, in a hypothetical situation with the Green Party or with Eamon's position on a thing at a time of controversy, that it could cause um, instability. Say, for example, with him and his colleagues, perhaps. I don't know. That that, that, that seemed to be where she was... Hang on. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that? I thought she put up a good argument. I, I don't know. I, I genuinely, I did. I did. Another way, Terry, and you know well, we have been at points politically over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, go back, for example, one thing that just immediately comes to mind, that whole thing that arose when Albert Reynolds lost power and initially there was a deal and then Labour came in, Bertie Ahern took over. You know, the oh, it was over a, a, a priest and that sort of thing. Insta- instability at that, those kind of periods like there are periods whereby small uh, like we said the, the small things that can trip you up if that turns out to be a minister's wife um, writing something that perhaps some of his colleagues regard as incendiary at a particular time could that set things down a particular road but you're piling hypothetical on hypothetical <laughs> And I, I appreciate your theoretical point, but I disagree with it. <laughs> right, okay. Because, first of all, I, I wouldn't like to guess at how long Victoria White has been in journalism, but let's say it's 30 years, right? If after 30 years she hasn't got the fundamental cup on to decide when to be incendiary and when, let me give you um, a, a greater clarity. You know that if you're asked to write an opinion piece, a commentator's piece for the Irish Examiner, the editor who asks you to do it is not going to endanger you 
by asking you to do it when it would uh, infuriate a judge because it would break the, the, the laws of the court or something. Because each one of us has a set of, of banisters, of barriers, if you like, that say, okay, this is not the time to write this piece. It would endanger an innocent person. It would irritate a, a, a judge, even if it wasn't quite outside where they could reprove you. There's a whole load of factors that every mature journalist takes into consideration. And I would figure that only an Egypt of a spouse, whether it's male or female, would write something that would gratuitously um, uh, uh, create problems around their spouse and government. But if they did, that's an individual failure of judgment and of professional standards. And it should be dealt with at the time as that. Not um, stopping one person having their full career based on the future tense remote possibility of something like that happening. That's all I'm saying. Fair point. Fair point. I have to say, um, I also say I'm I'm sorry that Victoria's gone down the route she has for the simple reason that I think she is an excellent columnist and was a big addition to the paper. No more than yourself, Terry. We are very kind. But Victoria had a thing that has always fascinated me. She always, she's sort of a vertical takeoff aircraft um, in writing terms. She always arrives infuriated. And that makes for fascinating reading, whether you agree with her or you don't. So I'm really sorry to see her gone. I couldn't but we'll agree see more. her somewhere else. Oh, definitely, definitely. And Terry, we'll see you somewhere else too. The clock has caught up with us. Listen, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks for joining us today, Terry. Huge pleasure. I'd also like to thank JJ Vernon and Sound, our engineer. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify, iCloud, all the usual platforms. You can let me know what you think at mick.clifford.examiner.ie or on Twitter at, at MickCliff. See you soon, folks. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.